Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. And I am delighted to say that we are joined by returning guest, uh, Alan Khan, writer and director of a great feature debut, After Love, and also Chris Rowe, composer of the music for After Love. Alan, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Now, I asked you both back on now because, Alan, the last time we spoke, it was because after Love was playing at the London Film Festival. Now it is finally available and in cinemas. And I thought it was worth revisiting the film to talk about it again and also to talk about uh, your relationship with Chris and how the music works. Just in case anyone hasn't yet seen it, first let me, uh, well, let me urge you to go and do so. You may have read my review in The Observer on uh, Sunday. Um, the story is essentially uh, Joanna Scanlon plays uh, Mary, who is a white English Muslim who converted many years ago in order to marry Ahmed, with who she lives near the Dover Cliffs. After he dies, she discovers that the work that was taking him back and forth from Dover to Calais was also actually leading him into another life. He had a whole other life going on in France, which she knew nothing about. And she finds herself cast adrift, and therefore she makes the journey to France to find out about Ahmed's other life. Now, I know that uh, we can say more than that about, you know, what the nature of the plot is, but I, I think let's, you know, let, let's be as circumspect as possible. Aline, firstly, um, I've read uh, many interviews with you now since I interviewed you before. One of the things that you've said a few times is you said that you grew up with English-Pakistani heritage and as both gay and Muslim. And so for you, duality was something that you, you understood. And you said that you led almost separate lives for many years. Just explain to me what you meant by that. Well, I think, um, especially when I was at university and kind of, I guess, um, really discovering my sexuality, um, but my, and I, I went to uni in London. My parents were, were still in Kent and I'm from a large family, yeah. um, a very large family. So it, it, at the time it kind of felt like I was, it, it felt like I was living two very separate lives. Um, although I was the same Aleem when I went back home to my parents, um, there was a huge part of me that they had no access to. And that really weighs on you because you feel like you're deceiving people. You feel like you are, well, you're hiding a part of yourself, a really important part of yourself. So that, that was, that was a challenging time. And, and when I did come out, um, you know, it's, it's a rocky road, but it, 
but I'm very fortunate that I have a really great relationship with my parents and and those kind of multiple identities within me have kind of aligned and all kind of facing the same way now. I love the fact that in the film, everybody has more than one identity. It seems originally that the, the key thing is that her husband, Ahmed, has been two different people to two different sets of people. But everyone we meet then turns out to be the same, whether it's the character of Genevieve, who is one thing to one person, another thing to somebody else, or the character of the son, Solomon, who is uh, Franco-Pakistani, has an allegiance to his father, appears to be at war with his mother, and yet also has a secret that he's keeping from everybody else. And right at the centre of it is Mary, who initially we think is, well, she's the victim of this duplicity, but actually through a brilliant dramatic sleight of hand because she's wearing a hijab and because she has a slightly servile manner she's mistaken for a cleaning woman and suddenly becomes this kind of superpower invisible person in somebody else's life so nobody in the film is exactly what they seem exactly and i think that is very true to life because i think we all have multiple identities within us and it, I, I kind of see it as kind of like, as like prisms and you know, as we turn, we reflect different versions of ourselves out to people. And depending on what day or what, who we're with, I think we all kind of code switch and we all learn to kind of adjust accordingly. Um, this is a film about betrayal. It's about many things. It's about love. It's about identity, loss, obviously, but it's about betrayal. And all, as you say, all of these characters betray one another. They kind of betray themselves too. And... I, for me, it was very important not to vilify Ahmed, not to kind of judge him because all of these characters lie to one another. Um, you know, as you say, Mary becomes complicit in Ahmed's deceit. Obviously, she's trying to understand the bigger picture and the truth, but she crosses some pretty, some pretty, you know, big red lines. And for me, it's about putting the audience in the film, having the audience look at their own relationships, look at their own faceted identities and I guess ask the question of when are we ever authentically completely ourselves are we can we ever be you know we're always modulating and there is a there's a lovely thing which is quite apart from that that you know that, that everybody has got this this kind of dual thing going on all the way through the film and I noticed I've now seen it three times and I noticed this more each time all the way through the film the duality of the central theme is mirrored in the shots. We constantly see shots that are mirrored against each other or reflect each other. That I mean, we open with this astonishing shot, which is a still shot, a scene of domesticity, darkened kitchen, light in the background. Something's happening in the background off screen, in fact, which is really important, but you don't notice it. At the very, very end, the camera creeps in and that movement is then repeated throughout the film. We see scenes in which the sea and the bed are mirrored, in which the cracks in the cliffs and the cracks in the ceiling are mirrored. And one of the things I, I love most about the film is having seen it three times, I've seen more in it each time. And it's really encouraging when you see a film and see more in it than when you see a film and see less in it. And believe me, that happens more often than you would think. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really pleased um, that you've found more in it each time you've watched it, because it is a very subtle film that, that I'm, I'm saying a lot in that work, but <laughs> It's very calibrated. And I think on first viewing, you are busy. I think an audience will be busy with certain aspects of the story. Um, and I, and I, I do think once you've watched it a couple of times, it, 
yeah, the different angles, the different the different nuances, I think, kind of present themselves. I'm really pleased that you've yeah that you've uh, that you've um, seen more in it each time. Hopefully, people that go to the cinema would go and see it three times. That would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. Now, Chris, <laughs> Chris, I'd like to bring you in here because one of the things that's very important to that sense of duality and that sense of the tension that's at the centre of the film. Um, is to do with the score. And I've played some tracks from it on my Scala show, and I'm very struck by how much certain scenes touch me because of the way the music works. As I was watching the scene when, they, when she, she crosses the channel and we have this, you know, the image of the cliffs collapsing, there's this tension in the in the music that reminded me, weirdly enough, of Nicholas Brattel's brilliant score for Moonlight. A similar kind of like the the feeling of the ground beneath you shifting. And I've now been listening to the score on its own because I now have a copy of it. Thank you very much. And what's remarkable is that if you having watched the film a few times now and then listened to that score on its own, the score is doing the thing that a film score really should do, which is evoking the film in my mind. What's the central theme for you um, or the central sort of guiding principle of that score? Yeah, um, for me on the watching the watching the kind of early cuts, it was um, I was just really struck by Joanna's performance and how she was it's such a still film for for so much of the film and and you know there's very little said actually um in the dialogue track and uh just seeing this kind of feeling this kind of gut-wrenching um thing that has happened to her but she just does she um she just looks i think when i first met up with aleem i I just found uh, we, we were chatting about how she is just in shock for the for the whole film, really, for, for the, at least the first half. And I think musically, you know, that's what that's definitely what drew me in. Um, trying to uh, trying to get that, trying to get inside Mary's head um, as a character and bring bring that kind of that that pain across. But um, you know, also the the way that what we really wanted to do was would not impose the music on the film because it is such a still. Uh, soundscape um, but we wanted to have the music sort of coming out of trying to come out of the sound design so thinking of the music mm-hmm. um, coming out of the wind out of the waves um, and and you know we spoke a lot about the the kind of metaphors um, through the film really before even writing any any notes and um, speaking about you know how how we could try and mimic the uh, the sounds of, you know, just taking like taking the fairy horn in the in the distance, um, or the idea of a propeller, kind of a rusty propeller going round, um, and how that could kind of leak into the into the score. Um, so really, I think, yeah, it, it's those two things of trying to trying to get inside Mary's head and and kind of enhance what she's doing on screen, but in a sort of subconscious way. I think if, if we can ride in on the on the sound design then it can be you know i think a lot of people that see this film won't consciously notice the music maybe until the end even and i think that's you know that's kind of what we were going for really excusez-moi oh 
I'm sorry. I am. Um, you are here for the cleaning? These can all go too. What's wrong with these? Ahmed doesn't wear them. Did you convert when you married? Back then, I did something for my husband that no one else could. What's interesting is that, you know, when I was, because I had to write about this for The Observer, and I used the word seascape when I was trying to, because I was trying to, it's very difficult to ever describe anyone's music. You know, you, 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 if you write about music, you end up saying things that just sound completely platitudinous. But it's, there is a kind of floating thing to it, particularly when you listen to it in isolation. It also sounds like a number of different voices slightly talking against each other. And I was kind of interested because at one point, you, I, you know, I noticed, well, firstly, the, the film plays out in English, French, and briefly in Urdu. The central character barely speaks. And the noise that you hear most of the time is the noise of everything else going on around. And I actually think that what the score managed to do was to evoke that idea that there are a bunch of voices around you but you can't quite tell where they're coming from. And I, I, that just really struck me. I wonder whether that just sounds like phony, baloney, pretentious nonsense to you. It was quite important to us to, um, for the music to really be a mirror of Mary's kind of inner soul, you know, her inner turmoil, her inner journey. And when we were talking about the music and how it was going to, I guess what it was going to represent the elements of, um, so I also have to say that we had an incredible sound designer called Joachim uh, Sundstrom, who is an incredible Swedish um, sound designer. And we worked the three of us very, very closely because we want, we kind of saw the score like waves with the kind of the sound design. We wanted the sound design to kind of lead the film and, and the score to kind of jump off and then kind of go back into uh, this design. We wanted the music to feel very, um, not that you didn't, that you felt it more than you noticed it. And we kind of looked at, for me, it was kind of like seeing it in pictures. Um, I kind of saw like the air sound. There's a lot of air, there's a lot of wind. There's obviously a lot of waves. There's a lot of rumbling and the earths and cracking. They all kind of represented different characters. So it's really interesting that you said the different voices because our approach was Mary was the earth, Genevieve was the water, Solomon was air, and, and Ahmed was the metallic sound, the, the, the ferry, the, the propeller kind of going between those two points. And so it was about starting from a place where it sounded very rusty, kind of fractured, where we didn't, you, the audience don't quite fully know what the melody is or where this rhythm is going. And as we go through the journey, as Mary begins to piece together this history and this life that her husband shared, the frame opens up in the cinematography and the score opens up to allow all of those fragments to kind of consolidate, to become a piece that's fully expressed at the end. We should say that, you know, you talk there about Ahmed, um, who is an absence in the film. That's from the very beginning, you think you're going to meet him, but you don't, you only do in kind of retrospect. Just for, for those who haven't yet seen the film, who is Ahmed? Where does he come from? What's his story? Oh, what's his story? Um, well, Ahmed is, is Pakistani and he's um, he was born in Pakistan and 
has lived in the UK for, for many, many years. He met Mary when he was a teenager. Um, but I don't want to define him because I don't want to. I think it's for that's fine. the audience. That's, fine. It's for the, that's kind of why uh, I'm asking It's you. for the audience to find him and place him themselves. And, and you know, just kind of linking this back to kind of the sonic, the you note know, of sound, there's a lot of silence as well. You know, we, we use silence in the film and there's, there's only a few points where we go to absolute silence, but um, the absence of sound of music is just as it's actually more powerful for me personally. I, f I find that we hear that it's, it's such it's, and I remember when we were mixing the film, Joachim was really afraid that we were mixing it too low. For me, he was like, look, these layers are really, these are kind of on the edge. People might feel that it's too sparse. But for me, it was really about stripping out. I didn't, I wanted every sound to have a reason for being there. And I want that silence in the auditorium. I mean, hopefully people aren't eating, but I want you know. <laughs> <laughs> have you been to a cinema recently? <laughs> I haven't had this experience yet where people are eating, thankfully. But, you know, it is a very quiet film. And I like that. I like that awkwardness that you get when you are in a cinema, in an auditorium, and yeah. something happens and there's that feeling that's shared. And when the music is lower and there's no, there's no kind of atmospheric sound. I mean, there's a lot of atmospheric sound in the film, but it's quite low. It forces us to listen and listen with our eyes in it as well. And yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah that's... The, okay, the other thing that I think is, is interesting, and I, one of the things I was trying to lead you slightly towards there with Ahmed is, what, is, what does Ahmed do for a living? Ali. So Ahmed, yeah, so I could, I can obviously expand on those things. So, uh, uh, <laughs> Ahmed is a captain of a ferry. So he's, his, his job is obviously going back and forth between Calais, Dover, Dunkirk. And that has allowed him to live this kind of split life in many ways. Yeah. So he's a man who was born in Pakistan, who lives in, in England, who's, who has another life in France and whose primary work is on the sea between places. So he is the very definition of a character in flux. And by the time we meet him, if you can actually say that we do, he's gone. And actually I thought one of the sort of, it's kind of a ghost story. Yeah, it is. A, it really is a ghost story. Yes, it is. And Mary in the outfit that she wears, one of the images that I had of my desk when I was writing this, because my mum doesn't, so the character is very much based on my mum. The film isn't autobiographic, but there are a lot of real things in the film that the film explores that are very close to home. So my mum doesn't wear the niqab, that full long kind of at the, very, at the beginning of the film, the kind of the white dress that hits the floor. But yeah. there, was, there was this image that I had on my desk. I don't know who the photographer was, and it was in a woman, wearing a, a full uh, niqab and she was facing away from the camera and she was standing in this room about to, to pray I think there was a mat on the floor and for me it was like she is a physical ghost she was like, almost like that kind of classic ghost with a kind of bed sheet it, it was like a woman who who was like lost in this void of this cloak and I don't know, the colour white was a very significant colour for me with this niqab because it just mirrored this kind of the cliffs and the chalk and the foundations. And yeah, it, it is a ghost story. It really is. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chris, I sent you a, a message. This is how this kind of got set up because I said, you know, thanks i've got the piece the cliffs i want the piece of music from the from the dinner scene and you said okay well actually it's called this and i'll you know send you the whole thing what's interesting is that there are a couple of moments and there there it's only a few when things come together and they come together you know harmoniously and the score does something very interesting at that those points it's not that it goes from being suspended or you know augmented whatever and suddenly we get nice big you know c majors but there is a sense that the score has these moments of warmth and harmony but they pass like waves it'll come together and then it will move on can you say something about that (laughs) no i mean that's that's really interesting because um I think what we spoke a lot about was, well, I actually focused on that final, the final scene was one of the first things I wrote and it's definitely the most complete piece of music, you know, musically. And we actually worked, um, had this idea of breaking, that was in you know, several layers and breaking it apart into fragments and kind of distorting those fragments, putting them through different prisms and, um, and I think through the film, my approach was sort of a collage approach so you kind of just piecing things together and i think yeah. hopefully that um you know we wanted to give the impression that mary's world is just being thrown completely up in the air and and yeah inside her head she's had has all of these different things um different kind of fragments of things that she thought she knew colliding with each other and um but yeah that's that's interesting to sort of yeah think of them as voices in that way um so for me it's um everything is referencing everything if that makes sense like they all have to work in harmony together to communicate i guess what i'm trying to say you know the production design the costume the performances the dialogue and the music they all they're all kind of part of the tapestry so um yeah i mean it's it's a slow it's a kind of slow food film it's something that you you know, you, you need to um, be patient with, because it does, I think it pays off, but it does, you know, it, it takes a while to kind of, it's something that seeps into you. And that was something that was important for us in the framing was to have that push in, you know, to gradually get closer to this character. And then as yeah. she embeds herself with this other family and develops a relationship, we allow the camera to move backwards to kind of see the frame. And the music, we you know, was works in the same way. It's about... Um, 
piecing it together to hear the full sonic scape of it. Um, Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's beautifully put. Actually, I mean, I think um, there's there's this kind of uh, kind of rocking um, motif that goes throughout the whole the whole film, just just um, two notes, and um, it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right because it has its own kind of rhythm and it's just like it's sort of passing. Um, but for other cues, it's sort of left suspended. And actually, what you're saying about a ghost story, it's 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 using the very kind of um, well, it's using harmonics on the cello, which very kind of disembodied sound, like taken away from its um, the usual kind of warmth that we that we feel from the cello. And um, uh, so, yeah, I think that must have been an influence in there, but. Um, that that moment is, it's yeah, it is almost like two kind of ships coming together, I suppose. Um, uh, and it, it's such an important moment in in the film. For um, it's uh, you know when I was watching watching the cut, it's when Mary kind of you get a feeling that there's some sense of peace. She's found some kind of um, sense of you know up until this point she's ju- just been in shock, I think, and then there's you know that kind of really beautiful moment between them and just a, you know a very simple um act of, of cooking together and um and actually that was one of the first scenes that i that i saw um that, that Aleem shared with me and and so that was i think i had you know almost had written that part first and then extrapolated it backwards so took those themes Fragment, fragmented them earlier on, and so when we get to that point, I think we've we're very familiar with that those those two notes, that kind of idea, um, and then when it sort of finally lands and into more of a kind of it's a, it's a waltz really, it's a kind of slow um, waltz between them, uh, and so yeah, it's it's a, it's one moment where there is a kind of um, a rhythm to it and. Uh, you know, a set a set tempo, and it it settles, doesn't it? it? Settles. And how much does the does the the tempo, the rhythm of that? How much of that is set by? Forgive my presence. Is it Alexander Dynan or Dinan, you're the cinematographer? How do you pronounce the name, Alim Dynan? Who I think he he shot Paul Schrader's first Reformed, which has a kind of you know a very particular aesthetic. How much is the is the tone of the music defined by? I mean, when I'm watching it as a, you know, as an audience member or as a critic, you kind of start looking at it and thinking, okay, there's this very particular framing, very particular slow moves, uncluttered. How much does that tell you what the score needs to sound like? Yeah, yeah. For me, I think it's the, I suppose it's the it's the scope, isn't it? So on that in that, um, so much of the film is is inside and and quite close, um, quite close it quite close in, and I think musically well this was was recorded just um there's only one instrument in the film it is just the cello an amazing cellist um alice perton who i worked with and uh so much of it is is recorded really really close as well so we so you get those all those kind of imperfections um and you hear the bow on the string and and you're um yeah you're, you're brought right into the instrument but then you know, in that final scene of the film, as the as we pan out, um, as Aleem said earlier, that that's when the kind of music rushes in, and there's it it broadens in scope um, just by adding lots and lots and lots of those layers on top of each other. But so I suppose, yeah, that that definitely it's, it's that that definitely kind of affects the 
yeah the, the kind of how close in we are to the sound but it's also mirroring it's mirroring it's mirroring mary because it's own i mean mary as a character is so constrained by her circumstances within this house it, trapped within herself with this grief and it's only in that and without giving spoilers away it's only in that last kind of 15 minutes where something happens that allows her to fully release and the music was a was a kind of a call to that a reaction to that release kind of pouring it out One of the things that I always think about with films is this sounds completely superficial is I think about titles a lot. I think about what the title of a film, I just reviewed a film that's had its title changed recently. And as soon as I know something's had its title changed, I need, immediately need to know what it was called before the title was changed. And that kind of seems to be terribly significant. And I was thinking about what after love meant. And it, what was interesting was that to me, it, it, it implied two things. The first thing it implied is aftermath, which is like, you know, the aftermath of something. But the other thing it implied was afterglow, as in the kind of, you know, tenderness and intimacy. And I, whether that's intentional or not, those two particular readings, I like the fact that it that the title implied those two apparently contradictory things, one of which is completely destructive, the other of which is kind of warm and glowing. And I just wonder whether you want to say something about what, without explaining it, without, you know, he was a sea captain. Just tell me what it means to you. Oh, I don't know how to articulate it. It's really tricky. I don't want to articulate it because I want people to decide for themselves. But for me, you mentioning this kind of this double meaning is 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 true. It's you know it's after the event of something, but it's also after something. It's seeking. You can read it as it being you know after wanting love. And both of those things are very much what the film is about. But it's, yeah, it's hard, to, it's hard to kind of define because I don't, because also like, what is love? I mean, it's, it's, it's not my responsibility to, to, to explain it. It's really for the audience to kind of question for themselves. This is why this is, it's always so hard, <laughs> isn't it? Because, you know, because you really want audiences to, to make it their own. And if I tell them, this is what it means to me, then they can only see it my way. And I always feel like the work, I've said what I wanted to say through the work and then you put it out and then people make it their own and you can discuss it. But if I tell them now before they've seen it, then it's like, uh, you know, it's, there's no other reading. But I, but I think the, the, the kind of duality of what something can mean really speaks to what the film's about, you know, beyond the kind of the initial expectation of something. It, it goes beyond that. I have to tell you, the best answer anybody ever gave me when I was doing the, you know, a film critic asking questions and the person literally not wanting to reply at all was Harry Dean Stanton, who I interviewed about Alien many years later. And he, I just could not get him to say anything about it because he was, he just doesn't like talking about his, about his films. And I finally said, Harry, tell me about the set. You know, the set was the most enormous thing and it's a whole world, you know, we're walking into that set. What, what was it like? And he said, what was it like? And I said, yeah. He said, what was it like the set? And I said, yeah. And he said, 
did you see the film? I said, yeah. He said, it was like that. <laughs> and I kind of thought, yeah, I understand. All right. So Chris, I'm going to throw this to you just to kind of bring things to a close. I've been playing your music away from the film on, on this radio show that I do on Scala. And I, I'm always aware that having a film music show is a strange thing because film music is written for films. And yet it also can be taken as a standalone thing. And some pieces of music work away from the films and some pieces don't. And it's not a flaw in them. It's just not what they're designed for. As the composer who wrote the music for the film, how do you feel about it being listened to away from the film? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I think, um, obviously, I, I love the fact that people are listening to it far and wide and, and you know, that's that's a great thing um, for the film and, and for the soundtrack. But I think, particularly for this film, so many of the cues are so personal to that to the film and to that scene and sort of feel like a lot of the process that we went through was about me writing something um, kind of bigger than some of the scenes maybe and then uh, sort of really stripping it back and, and to its kind of bare elements that would work and because it is tied in so closely with the sound design um, and really kind of works, works off it I think some of the cues yeah they they um there's a danger if it was played on its own that it would just kind of have a sort of emptiness to it um but then you know we never listen to music just completely you know we, there's always something else going on isn't there which which kind of um adds you know fit, fits into it so it's a tricky one and that that's i think that's why we put the first we put the last cue of the film at the top of the album yeah uh, as the kind of title track because because of the the process that um, in which it was written, you know, that was the the fuller piece that we wrote at the end, from which everything else kind of um, was fragmented. So, uh, you know, I think that that kind of has a standalone quality to it. But um, if you kind of tune straight in at, at track four or track five, it might. I think you have to kind of appreciate it after hearing the first track, if you like. Um, okay. Well, then I apologise for playing individual <laughs> tracks from it on the radio and probably completely destroying <laughs> the work, but still sounding pretty good. Well, Aline, um, when you're walking around your house, you know, doing the tidying, whatever it is, do you, do you feel I just slap on the... I'll slap on the After Love soundtrack? Actually, I have been doing that a lot in the bath. I mean, I'm getting such a rush just listening to the music that, that Chris composed from our film. I mean, it's a really... it's a, It's a... He, Chris is such a wonderful person to work with and listening to the music at home I, I'm listening to it every day and um, <laughs> this might sound really cringe but I kind of thought that when I die I'd really like that last track to be that the Cliffs track to be the music because I feel like it's such a personal film for me it's my first film I kind of feel like that's um, and Dover is such a special place for me and my family that it's kind of a piece of music that I will always um, that I'll always listen to and carry with me. So, I think um, Chris is right. It's absolutely tied to the film, but it's something that um, that is meant to be enjoyed and and experienced. Um, our you know the way we are, we find our way into anything is very personal. So I hope that people do listen to this, and I'm glad that you're playing the tracks individually as well because. I think it's also just highlighting um, Chris's brilliance. Chris, since Aline brought this up at your funeral, what are we going to hear? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's got to be 
I'm, um, so at our wedding, we had the we had uh, Stravinsky's Firebird. Sounds that we had we got lots of musical friends, so we had like a huge uh, kind of scratch orchestra. And I think yeah, the end the end of that is pretty pretty special, right? I can't have my own music. <laughs> I'm I'm being carried out to the sound of Elvis's American Triology, all of it, and everyone has to stand until the end. Uh, Aline, Chris, thanks ever so much for coming on the show. Congratulations on the film, which is currently playing in UK cinemas. As I said, I'd advise you to go go once, go twice, go three times. You see more every time. Thanks ever so much. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, do all the usual stuff, visit our Patreon page where there's exciting video of this conversation in which you can see Chris's incredibly well-appointed studio and Aleem's very tidy room behind him as opposed to the pit that I appear to be living in at the moment uh, thanks for listening keep watching the skies and uh, see you next week even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.